Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, fascinating topic and a very much an emerging uh, research area. Um, as Patrick said, yes, my, uh, my former life was in uh, sports coaching, sports pedagogy. I spent a lot of time training uh, undergraduates to become uh, sports teachers and sport coaches. And it was during that uh, career I had the opportunity to start a PhD, um, which looked at uh, emotional processing in feedback. And there were a lot of synergies between what goes on in the sporting world and the relational elements that, that Helen alluded to between a coach and an athlete that I thought would apply to my practice. So it's very much a practice-based PhD um, and there's very, uh, various different publications that I've got from that. But um, as my career's transitioned, I've been spending a lot of time looking at development of feedback literacy and how lecturers are getting the best out of their students and changing the uh, dynamic from one of passive recipients which is um, something I'm going to talk about today, to more active students involved in the process. And crucially, taking away all of the work that we have to do as practitioners and asking the students to do a little bit more, which is a little bit controversial when you talk to higher management. But this is what I'm going to put forward to you today. So uh, I guess I'm going to have to come out of this and open mine. So I'm going to talk about four um, <coughs> areas today. The first one is about responsibility sharing. Um, I'm going to report on some research that we've been doing around educators' um, perceptions of responsibility and feedback. And that's the kind of start point for, for today's discussion. Then I'm going to look at how dialogue um, happens within a particular discipline. Uh, and for this, um, it's going to be in humanities, which I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, the second, uh, sorry, third area is um, having somewhere for feedback to land. And the final one that we all love, the NSS. So I've been doing some research with a colleague um, that looks at the NSS and how students interpret the questions and more importantly, the sort of things that they expect um, around blame, etc., for situations that may give us an indication of why they are consistently over a 15 year period voting that as the lowest part of their experience, apart from the student voice, but that's new. Uh, so, <clears throat> responsibility. Um, we're hoping that we'll get positive comments. Um, we are right near the end of the review process on this, so we, we're expecting our uh, reviewer one and two comments to land any, any day soon. Hopefully lots of nice comments and not loads of horrible reviewer two. Um, so we've been looking at responsibility sharing in the feedback uh, process. So we, we spoke to um, some uh, lecturers about this um, around the idea that as David Carlos has been arguing for quite some time, that the impact of feedback is really driven on what students do with feedback rather than necessarily what we as educators do. So the idea of impact, and there is um, a plug uh, for a book by a collection of researchers that came out um, just at the end of last year that looks at impact and how we measure impact and what we conceive impact um, is. And, I'll, and I'll, um, I'll probably tweet a link to that later. Um, but also, if we are trying to shift the practice towards more student-centred models of feedback, then really we need to understand how educators conceive their responsibility, and more importantly, how they feel students conceive of their responsibility. Do our students necessarily understand what we're trying to achieve in this thing that we call feedback? So this is where the comment around feedback literacy um, has evolved, a development from assessment literacy from the work of Margaret Price, etc. in the early noughties, to now understanding how students conceive of feedback and what they can do with feedback. So there's a lot of attention, probably um, the biggest article for the last 
say 20, you'll love me saying this, 20 years. Um, if you look at how many downloads that one article in, in 2018 got, 25,000 downloads, I think it's nearly 200 and something citations. So this has really set the agenda for the last two years in feedback research. So this is kind of where we're all going with this. But what we know from, particularly with a comparison of Australia and UK, and unfortunately this research by Naomi Winston and David Baird suggested that the Australians are winning, and we can't have that. If anyone follows cricket, it's not a good thing. So Australian practitioners do seem to have a more developed sense of um, feedback literacy development and also more active student engagement. So what did we do? We asked uh, many uh, lecturers that responded um, to two questions. What is the responsibility of the educator in the feedback process and what is the responsibility of the student? And you'll see that we got responses from teaching focus, research intensive, lots of different subjects. And when we compared all of the uh, qualitative comments, we did some statistical analysis, there were no significant difference in terms of what I'm going to report here between subject or focus of institution. And quite often when people are talking about practice, there's this dichotomy between are you from a research intensive university or are you from a teaching focus? Absolutely no difference, which is probably quite pleasing to, to see. So when we look at educator responsibility, we found a larger number of what we would call provision of comments. So if you're familiar with the way that feedback literacy has been proposed, there's this version of feedback as old paradigm, very much the educator being the person that gives comments, writes feedback. This idea that we have to write more and more feedback. The best type of feedback is the longest type, the more comments. The newer paradigm is the idea of students being more active and the idea that students will use the feedback to improve learning or subsequent assessments. So for an example, a lecturer said, provide detailed and accurate feedback that highlights the positive negative elements of the student's work, and this should include things that they should improve on. So very much telling them what to do. So feedback is telling. Conversely, we did see some comments, significantly less though, that talked about the facilitation of students' development. Help them grow as a learner so they are improving on the journey through the course. Understand where their strengths are and where they may need some additional support enable them to do their best. So comments that were directed towards alternative sources. And in this new paradigm, seeing feedback as not just coming from the educator, that there are opportunities for engagement with other people within their sphere of influence. So peers, for example, or also thinking about feedback in a different way that isn't just written comments. And I'm gonna talk about that a little bit later on. We also did see things that related to follow, following policy and procedure, which is always good. I'm sure we all have an assessment and feedback policy at our institutions that we adhere to um, all the time. Quite surprisingly, very little in the way of effective awareness, the idea of how students might manage their emotions. I've written some work on the effects that anonymous marking might do in reducing that relational element between marker and student. And the effective awareness is eradicated when you don't know who you're writing for. It becomes a bland, vanilla response that students realise is not very personalised. And I think Helen um, just alluded to the fact that we have this idea that AI can produce feedback. I've just re um, reviewed a paper that um, 
that created uh, at the touch of a button uh, personalized uh, feedback. But actually, if you're familiar with mail merge, this was very much a feedback by mail merge. Um, and it was quite obvious that, that students would work out that that was just, we've all had these, thank you for your, yeah, whatever, and you know that it's just a computer that's produced that. So I, I'm, I'm convinced that we as humans are probably very, very crucial to the feedback element. And this kind of pleased me, grade justification. As an external examiner, you can read feedback and think, are they writing this for the student or are they writing this for the examiner so they know that they've marked this in the right way? Which is very frustrating, I'm sure, for a student just to be told what they've already written in the, in the uh, essay or the, or, or the other assignments and, and how that's been marked against the rubric. So, so no developmental feedback in a sense, just this is why I've marked the work in the way I have. What about students? So, a large emphasis on students processing comments. So from a psychological perspective, if you're processing something, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are enacting or doing something with it. So you could understand the feedback, but as we've argued earlier in, in, in the book that I mentioned, enactment is another step forward. So to engage with the feedback, we hear this word engagement. Um, I know there is a review coming from Australia on engagement and the number of different ways that we conceive engagement within higher education is alarming. It can mean so many different things and it's become this catch-all phrase, oh, we've got to engage. But actually what does that mean in terms of feedback and enactment is something that we're exploring. Try and understand what they need to do to make themselves better. We did see some though that related to enactment of comments. And I think this is quite an important distinction to make to choose whether and how to make changes in their future work as a result. And I think this is a more developed understanding of how feedback might operate. This element of agentic enactment. Do I want to use that feedback? Do I feel like that feedback is appropriate for me to use in a subsequent uh, assessment or a subsequent interaction? And I think once students get to that point about discerning whether feedback is useful or not, is quite a developed sense of, of feedback literacy. We all probably have had feedback from people, it might be on work or it might be on how we, how we operate within our, in our roles, and we might think, actually, I'm gonna to choose to ignore that. And quite a lot of the literature that we have on feedback suggests that this power relation, because we say as educators, students must do it. But I think if you think about the way that feedback works in the real world, we can all choose to take that on board or not. Quite often I give my wife feedback when she asks for it about the dress that she wants to wear. Very few times does she take my feedback and she will choose the alternative dress. Why she asked me, I don't know, but she's asked for it. But the, the agency, I see we're a little bit uh, detracting away from the subject, but the agency to, to make that decision is what I'm getting at. Getting students to a point where they can choose whether or not to enact comments. There are a few bad jokes throughout this um, presentation, unfortunately. And, and we have some other areas that we would expect it around seeking clarification. Quite often that manifests itself in, I'm not happy with the grade, therefore I'm going to go and see my lecturer to find out why I got that grade, which is a difficult conversation to engage with and quite often doesn't result in a change. Some elements of engaging in dialogue, um, but not as many as we would expect, and following guidelines. I suspect that this is something that people think just happens as a matter of course, but we would hope that students would follow guidelines um, in, in terms of feedback. So, what we did is did some statistical analysis, as I suggested, and we found that, that educators were uh, significantly more likely 
to um, mention provision of comments than facilitations of students' development. And in terms of student responsibility, significantly more likely to mention process of comments than mention enactment of comments. So this was fine. We could have stopped there. But we wanted to get a little bit deeper into the data. So we did some linguistic analysis using a, a program called LUIC that um, you, you essentially plug the, um, the transcripts in and this processes through, um, I mean, the, the, the manual's ridiculously long, um, but there's lots of words that, in, that reveal how someone conceives of the language and what that might mean. So we ran this, this um, package on, on all the, uh, the comments that we received and this is what we found. So in particular, we were looking around whether or not educators had more conviction around the language that they were using when describing their own practice or what they thought students' responsibility were. So as you see here, let the educators were far more certain in their language about their own practice and what they should be doing than they were about what students should be doing. And similarly, they used more tentative language around what students should be doing than their own suggesting to us that they were more convinced about their own practice than that what they thought students should be doing with it. You won't be surprised to see that when we look at influence, particularly around power, there is more um, conviction and, and, and certainty around the power element, so more likely to talk about them as power. I've done some interviews with students uh, uh, a few years ago and um, they, they, all, they, said to, they said to me, um, not, just about, not, not about me, but about their lecturers, um, that they are godlike figures. And that's, that's quite a lot of responsibility as an educator to walk around if someone thinks you're a godlike figure. But that got me thinking that that's a problem. If you feel like someone is that high up and hold someone in that high esteem, how does that affect the relationship that you might have with them around dialogue and, and feedback? And that's probably not something that we want to do. So I think this, this whole movement towards students as partners, as Karen mentioned, is, is a really important step to break that barrier down and actually say, we're trying to improve the student. We, we don't, we're not there just to make a, a, a sort of almighty decision about their future. It is, it is a partnership in feedback. If we talk about effect, and we're not really sure what's going on with this, we, we feel that we probably need to do some more research around emotions, but we, we know that we're encouraged to give students far more positive feedback than we are negative. You're probably all familiar with the feedback sandwich. I know it's got another name. Um, but there are, uh, there's a wonderful graphic I saw online a few months ago where now we're getting the gluten-free sandwich. Um, so there's no bread. It's just, the, it's just the bit in the middle, which you know what that means. Um, but we are actively encouraged by um, the hierarchy within HE to not upset our students. And negative feedback has almost been seen as a bad thing. But conversely, if we think about the way that the real world works, when they leave this bubble that is higher education, negative feedback is something that students are going to experience on a daily basis. So how do we break that barrier down and actually get students to understand that the negatives are there to improve and it's not an attack on them as a person and it really is a way of improving that individual. And quite often we can learn from negative feedback in a better way. So, the feedback fire hose. Give them more. Has, has anyone had a DVC suggest that? Just, just give them more feedback. That'll help us. That, that'll improve the situation. The more feedback one gets, the better. To use the analogy, back in the 80s and 90s, footballers were seen as not very bright individuals. Okay? David Beckham did nothing to dispel that myth, unfortunately. 
But quite often when you watch football, you'll see a substitute coming on and the manager or assistant manager will be in their ear for a good two or three minutes telling them all these instructions. How many of those instructions are they going to remember? How many of them are they going to be able to enact? And this idea that we just shoot as much feedback to an individual as possible and let them decipher what's the important parts is a really difficult system for students to engage with. My daughter is only seven and I see what they do at, at, at school. And they have a traffic light system, which is really simple. And right from the age of four, she was aware of what that traffic light system meant. Green, this is the things I've done well. Red, these are the things I need to do better. She's able to tell me, it's one line, straight away, incremental changes to the way she learns. And we kind of now have overcomplicated a system. We have massive rubrics, massive um, uh, feedback sheets, or we write pages and pages. I remember one um, uh, lecturer telling me, I write three pages of feedback. That's the best quality feedback ever. But how can a student discern what the thing is they need to do in the future? So we've kind of overcomplicated and made it more of a thing than it needs to be. So how can we move to a point where there is this dialogue, this collaboration between lecturers and students and peers and students talking about feedback and what makes effective change to their learning? How can we take these building blocks to make our learning improve? How can we give them feedback that they can use in a more consistent pattern? So that we can have a situation where we have a shared responsibility where students know that there is a responsibility for them to use feedback and engage with it and seek it, rather than just waiting for us as the practitioner to be the one that gives all the information. Because students will ask this question, what is in it for me? If you've got young kids, they ask that question. Young kids are really insightful for practice because they ask the questions that adults don't. You tell a child something and they go, well, why? Why should I do that? But as adults, we kind of almost go along with it, don't we? Have you seen the, um, the psychological experiment of the lift, where someone gets into the lift and they turn the other way? Have you seen that? Go on YouTube. So someone gets in a lift, they turn the other way. After a period of time, everyone else in the lift turns the other way because they think that's the way that things should operate. That's the, that's the conformity. Young kids ask questions. Well, why am I doing that? Why are you asking me to do that? Because they don't know any, any, any difference. So... What I'm saying is students are going to ask, why are you doing this? What is in for me? And maybe your students are thinking that if we consistently do things the same way, there's no benefit to me. So, somewhere for feedback to land. So my research in the last couple of years has been looking at where we can change our curriculum and the things that we do in the classroom to give students an opportunity to use their feedback with the understanding that what we're trying to do is reduce the workload, reduce the hours and hours and hours that we spend giving feedback. And staff are really bad at feedback as well. So I run a PG Cert, so Chatham House Rules. I had a look on our VLE to see how many staff had looked at their feedback for the PG Cert. What percentage do you think looked at the feedback? A little bit higher, but not much. Wow, that's really, that's really low. 30. No. Less than that. Less than 30, but more than 4%. 9%. So immediately I said to my team, what's the point in us spending all of these hours writing feedback that essentially goes into this humongous feedback graveyard? 
that is never seen. Because before we had technology, we were all consciously aware of when feedback wasn't looked at because we had those piles of essays in our office, if you remember that far back. And at the end of the mythical five years for audit, we'd go and shred all this stuff. Right? But half your office was full of feedback, un un unreturned work. Online, we don't see that necessarily. But in RVLE, we use, we use um, Feedback Studio. You can see where students have looked or not. And again, that's frustrating. So it's not as conscious for us. So I was thinking, well, how can we enact get students to enact feedback, how can we create a curriculum that drives that? So I've got a number of different um, research areas that I'm going to talk through and give you some practical um, tales from what's gone on in, in different uh, subject disciplines um, that, that may help to understand how students are using feedback. So the first one, I got some funding from the British Academy and I looked at dialogic feedback. Um, I talked to three lecturers, and what the key thing that I found from talking to those lecturers in humanities was that the culture of the learning envi environment drove feedback use. Feedback was embedded within the curriculum. It was embedded in the teaching. It was an expectation. From day one of first year, this is the way that feedback operates. Students were coming in from various different backgrounds, and the way that feedback happens in school is different, so it was almost like an unlearning. And they used three different things. They operationalized dialogic feedback in the classroom, they used exemplars, and they used peer feedback. And I'm going to talk through some of these now. So in terms of a learning environment, the first thing that struck me, because I did quite a lot of observations, was that failure was acceptable. Now that's quite a controversial subject at the moment. You've all heard of the highlight reel, I'm sure, on social media, that everything on social media is perfect that nothing goes wrong. And when someone says, oh, this really bad thing happened to me today, the number of people that comment, oh, it's so refreshing to hear that. Oh, I can't believe this. Everyone in, in this room, I'm sure, at some time has faced <coughs> adversity. You don't get to be a successful academic if you've not had adversity. That rejection, things that don't work. I think sometimes students feel like we are perfect. And trying to dispel that myth was really refreshing to see here that Actually, working progress could go wrong. So one of the subject area was comedy. Now, I don't know if you've been to a comedy club, um, but they are quite brutal situations. So if we were in a comedy club now, Kieran and, and Patrick and, and Karen and Namrata would be for it because they're in the front row. Right? The comedian's going to give them that. So what they did is they replicated that situation. Students were asked to design their comedy sketch, design what they were going to do, and go through an iterative process of presenting that to a real comedy club setting with the final assessment at the end of the, the, the module being a comedy club that included their family, friends and professionals. So to get from that point all the way to there, you're going to have to really improve and experience that. So it's very much replicating what would go on in the real world. Now, I won't lie to you, that was quite uncomfortable to watch in the first few weeks. People were dying on the stage, like really bad. But by the end of it, because of those experiences, because of that adversity, but more importantly, seeing how their peers adapted to that adversity over a period of time had a real impact upon the way that they learned. And crucially, there was actionable feedback because there was this replication of doing the tasks again, being able to amend. So any comedy act that you see, for example, or any performance, whether it's musicians or drama or theatre, will go through this process of constantly refining. And because this subject is definitely not something that people write about very often, it tends to be in feedback research about social sciences or sciences about essays, these were performative subjects. 
and seeing that creative process and how people refine that and how it was a more collaborative experience was something that I felt was really important and there may be lessons that we can learn about how we get students to create um, assignments over time. One of the ways that they did this was through a series of exemplars. So they started off with what we would call teacher-led exemplars. So the teacher would use professional exemplars. So, so YouTube was fantastic for this. Um, the person that was running this course was a comedian themselves and had worked with various different comedians on, on the circuit as a writer, because that's something I learned, that not all comedians write all their own jokes. They have a big team behind them um, that, that create for them. Um, and they showed them these so that they could calibrate the standards to work out what it was to be a professional comedian, how they would structure their jokes, how they would work the audience, how they would work the stage, so that students could see the highest possible level. So as David Carlos um, uh, describes it, it's developing a nose for quality. What does quality look like in my discipline? How do I aspire to that top level? And then they would do something that I felt at the start was quite risky. This is where they use live student work in progress. Actually getting students up on a weekly basis to demonstrate their work in progress, which is quite difficult as a practitioner because you never really know how that student's going to perform. And that was challenging at the start, and it was challenging for the whole group to get, to get their heads around. But over time, that became the norm. You share your work. So this idea that we cover it and we don't ever share it because people might cheat, that wasn't necessarily going to happen in there because you wouldn't tell the same jokes. But seeing how people evolved was something that was important. And it afforded the students more agency, again, as I was alluding to earlier, giving them an opportunity to either take on board that feedback or reject that feedback. In the first few weeks, the feedback was a little bit um, superficial. Um, yeah, that's really good, well done, because you get that when you get peers giving feedback at the start because they don't want to upset their friends. By the end of it, they were all critics. They all were quite happy giving their honest feedback because they realised that it improved the individual if they were going to get that honest feedback. So this, this feedback sandwich, essentially it became a gluten-free sandwich. It was just the negatives that they needed to work on because there was that culture that was built. It was acceptable to, to give that. And then they would calibrate their performance referential to the previous um, quality examples. So they were trying to see how their, how their performance fitted in with what we would call as, as top level. So if you look at the way that people use exemplars with, with essays, they give them a sample of, of top quality work and lower quality. So they can then make the distinction between where their work lies and, and the quality. The last one that I'm going to mention was in film. This is the Scriptwriters Forum, they called this. And this was weekly, ongoing, iterative scripts that they would need to pitch to the class. Now, back in 1989, Roy Sadler talked about this idea um, at a really top quality, high class university in Australia that had very low numbers. And as soon as we talk about this, people worry about numbers. There were a large number of students on this module. So it was kind of split into small groups, if you like. But the idea that you can weekly, you can write something, was quite normal within this subject. So you're pitching this to your, to your, to your peers, and you would get feedback. You would get ongoing feedback. But also students had an opportunity to calibrate quality. They could notice quality in different people's pitches as the weeks went on. You would also get feedback from the lecturer, but the labour-intensive nature of the feedback was kind of taken away from the educator because peers were generating feedback within the class time. And the lecturer said to me, he said, I'm not having to do 
all of the work that I previously did where I would each week mark those scripts and send the feedback. So they would get one, one person's feedback, whereas the class were providing feedback. So it was kind of taking the load away, but also, as, as David Nichols says, it's far more cognitively engaging to give feedback to someone than it is to receive. Because you have to think about why the work you're looking at is good or bad. You have to come up with a reason. So it's actionable. Week on week, they could choose to use the feedback or not to improve the quality of their pitch. And then the final week, they would get um, uh, commissioning editors from, from BBC. Um, they did have one um, that was going to come in from Netflix. Um, and they would pitch those ideas to an industry expert. And you can, you can know what those sort of people are going to be like because they make those decisions on a daily basis. So again, replicating the professional environment. So it's all built around this feedback literacy model, as I mentioned, from David Carlos and David Bad. And I know this is in development um, to, to sort of add uh, other areas. Um, but the thing that strikes me with this and what we're talking about is really giving students an opportunity. Just let this guy take the photo. Um, is giving students room for sense making giving students time to think about the feedback and what it means for them. One of the criticisms that we can sometimes level at um, a lot of the research is that it's, I give a piece of feedback and then I measure whether it was used next time. And what I saw in these particular examples is that over periods of time, feedback they may have got in week two suddenly made sense in week 10. And I think that's probably the biggest criticism that we can level at assessment feedback research is that we are sort of almost conditioned to, I did this and then this happened and I'll measure that. But over time, things can change. And that, if, if, you've, if you've done a PhD, that process, that long process, it's not always actionable. And sometimes feedback can come to you a lot later in the process because then it makes sense. So there's this idea that students have to think about the process as we go along. So um, I did some stats. Um, uh, and I have to say I'm not a stats expert, but thankfully um, my colleague is a little bit better than I am. Um, and we looked at um, what, what did it mean for the students? Now these were first year students, so there is a caveat here because they developmentally would not be the same as third year students. So some of what I'm going to report here, we are looking at um, measuring this again in, in, in the third year students. But we looked at, used the feedback orientation scale. Um, and we asked 270, we got 94, 94 responses, which we're fairly happy with. Um, we did some anavis. Um These are the numbers. Um, so not a huge amount, but these students were not necessarily used to um, uh, talking about this. Um, and, and certainly this scale was very new to them. Uh, so what did we ask them? So we talked about how confident they were applying the positive and negative feedback to their work. And whether or not they applied the feedback to their work. Um, and what we found was the numbers were quite um, surprising, uh, not, not, not hugely high on a, on a Likert scale of one to, one to five, but film students were significantly more likely to apply the dialogic feedback and they were more confident in applying. Now we think some of that might be due to firstly the stage of learning, but also the new mode of feedback. So quite often, feedback that students receive or how they conceive of feedback is that it's written comments. And I think that's probably the biggest frustration, and I'm going to talk about the NSS later, that 
they only see the things that we write as the feedback. Whereas all the, in, uh, all the indications are that there's lots of other elements of feedback that happen on a daily practice. The office hours, the, the conversations in the corridor, coming up at the end of a lecture, all those sort of things with their peers, that are all part of feedback. All the things that happen in a classroom, in a seminar, those things are feedback. Students don't necessarily see that. So where these students were um, a little bit different is that they were getting some elements of written feedback as well on their scripts. So that may be a reason why they were perceiving that feedback as more useful. But we're going to look into that and we've got, we've got a new project running on that. The other area is around responsibility. So, so chiming with the, with the earlier work on, on, on the educator's responsibility. We asked them around whose responsibility was to, uh, to um, use the lecturer's feedback and also the same questions about their peers. Uh, and that scale suggested that there were no significant differences between subjects. But what we notice here is the numbers. If we got four to four and a half on the NSS for feedback questions, we would all be really, really happy. Okay, so it suggested that students had understood that it was their responsibility to use the feedback. And again, this chimes with the idea that the culture was that everyone was going along with the idea that they could see people using it and see people improve. So therefore, it was important for them to consider that feedback um, in the future. So the next one I want to look at is a third year business module. Now, this was um, under the umbrella of it's better to ask for forgiveness than it is for permission, because as you will automatically notice, there are a lot of assessments in this module. We have been told that we must reduce the numbers of summative assessment. I don't know who made that decision. Someone did. Because assessment is a bad thing. But what we know is that students are very assessment driven. And quite often the source of frustration is that we try and do all these things in the classroom, all this extra reading, and they don't engage in it unless it relates to an assessment. And that's really frustrating. So this lecturer said, well, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to link everything I do and all the content to the assessment and see what happens. So there were eight presentations in this module and the way they designed it was quite clever because they split the students into eight different groups and they all had to look at a, a global conglomerate from different perspectives and each presentation was on a different area of this um, global company. Within the class time, therefore, all students got exposure to eight different companies from eight different angles. So quite a lot of content was delivered. And what we see is over time, the percentage improvement is quite vast. So from around about an average of 62.6 on presentation one to 75.1 on presentation eight. I was in the library doing another project at the time and the number of student groups that met and that were discussing this project was quite vast. There were huge concerns at the start from the students, a couple of um, disgruntled emails, shall we say, about the load, how much work. But the lecturer said, trust me in this process. If you engage in this process, you will get better marks than you would on any other module that you do. So they had opportunity to enact feedback over time. Again, re repetition from the same type of assessment. They could use the knowledge and crucially, they could prepare for the final exam because what the exam question did was ask them to analyze another company that they hadn't presented on. So they had exposure to seven other companies within that module. And they had to then talk about two of those companies in the final exam. Now, these students had a lot of examinations. The criticism that students said when they came through the years 
were that 70% of their course was exams, yet they received no feedback on their exams. This school was going through the floor on NSS, like really bad, because the, mul the multiplication of exams that they did meant they, no they got no feedback. So they were obviously going to rate that as lower. But what we saw was that their score on the exam was a lot higher than other modules. Some of these modules, they've got 300 students on, their average mark was low 40s for the examination, which is going to have a negative effect on the performance of the whole cohort. So this, this module was controversial. The lecturer reported at the graduation the amount of students that came up to her and said, that was the best thing I have done at university. <coughs> at the start, I hated the idea of it. I was really worried about the volume of work, but the process worked. I have been able to stand up at PwC for interviews for graduate programmes with so much confidence because I was exposed to so much presentations in, in that module. That replicates the skills that I would need in an employment situation. So this, this school has now kind of um, thought about how assessment can drive student learning, but also employability characteristics that you would need, particularly in a business school. So she didn't get any pressure for the volume of assessment. But this didn't, didn't go through any um, approval. She just did it. She kept the 20% and inputted the marks in a spreadsheet and then put the mark at the end. So it's risky. But sometimes risk can pay off. And that can have a reward because her students have commented like that and have performed better. So sometimes being risky in terms of practice could be a potential benefit for your students if that's what you, you feel like. The last one I want to talk about is um, feedback literacy in the workplace. When I went to university, as, as many of us in this room, the sandwich degree was pretty popular. Um, that kind of went away, but some universities are starting to realise that actually it could have a real benefit for students to go away and do some, do some things in, in a work setting for a year. So in this structure, our students do two years of a course, then they go off and have a placement, either an entire year or maybe two six-month placements in a different field, um, sorry, a different employer, um, and the field would be within the, the, the course. So these students were um, from business again. Um, most of the research on that says that it's beneficial, uh, there's a 7% rise in performance, and it's down to work ethic. And when I looked at this, I thought, well, there's got to be a little bit more to this than just going off for a year and you'll come back working harder. There must be something that changes. There must be something that develops the individual. Now, I had concerns that it might just be a maturational thing. But also, I thought, well, actually, what goes on in the real world? Would that have a positive effect on our students? So I, under the guise of feedback literacy, I took the four um, boxes that I mentioned earlier, and we unpicked those and asked our students after the year in industry, these specific questions about how feedback worked in the workplace and whether there was any um, positive benefits that they could see to that and whether or not they changed as a result of the feedback culture. Um, the key one was changes in the understanding of feedback as a purpose. Lots of them talked about the opportunity to be able to think about feedback and have it from multiple sources within one working environment. Having it from their boss, having it from their line manager, having it from the managing director, having it from clients. So actually taking work that you've done to a client and them giving you honest feedback because they were paying for it. So why would they give you something that was, oh yeah, thanks, thanks very much, but that's cost me 50 grand, for example. So lots of them talked about that as a process. But also the idea that work cultures, if you want feedback, you can't just sit there and wait for it. You've got to go and seek it. You've got to go and actively ask. You've got to network. You've got to 
solicit feedback from various different sources in order to improve the work that you're doing. Because once you're set a task, your blind manager is not going to micromanage you. They're going to say, I want you to get on with that, but come and see me if you need some help along the way. Many of them talked about that being a really difficult concept at the start, because quite often this culture of come and see me, yeah, it's there, but do they actually take heed of that? Do they actually have an opportunity to come and see us? Are we available? So they felt empowered to take action and enact feedback so that they could improve work as they went along. A lot of them were struck by how much group work happened. And students really complain about group work. We set group work so much. It's, on the PG cert, the first question I get, oh, group work's a nightmare. How do you stop that being a problem? These students kind of got that then. They said, well, we're working with people that we don't always get on with. And I was like, well, that's real life. I'm sure we all work with people that we don't get on with. But you have to manage those situations, different personalities. So there's an element of how you might give feedback to a difficult colleague that wasn't pulling their weight. But knowing that you can't just go to a lecturer and say, oh, such and such is not performing. Because in a work culture, it's different. You kind of have to get on with it and, and work as a team. They talked about evaluated judgments, which is the concept of recognising quality. Why is something good? That was really difficult for them in the start. And what the research is showing us on evaluative judgment is it can't just be a one hit. Say, here's an exemplar, tell me if it's good or bad. There, you've got evaluative judgment. It's an ongoing process. You have to create multiple opportunities and give students lots of exposure. So through this process of, in, of working here in, in their placement, they were able to have multiple opportunities to see the quality of their own work, but also their peers as they were working through the process. And finally, the idea of resilience. And I think resilience is something that's really important. I think the really disingenuous phrase that we've got a snowflake generation isn't helpful. It's a deficit position to have. I think it's about giving young people the skills to become resilient. How you overcome adversity. Not saying just because it's, you didn't experience something in a nice way, then you're not very resilient, you're a snowflake. It's about having the tools. It's about creating an environment where you can have failure, but it's how you adapt and how you become better. And they said work was very good for that because there was adversity. There were negative emotions. Some of these students had left the, the wonderful environment of the, the university halls of residence and they were living in central London and they were having to work and operate. So there's, there's lots more on here. We have done some follow-up interviews in the last few weeks and we're going to do it again at the end of term to really see how they enacted feedback that they got from their work placement in their degree. How did that have an impact on their feedback-seeking behaviour? Did they change as a result of that exposure? Because I think from the early indications of the research we were doing, there's a lot more goes on in that work placement than just improving work ethic and knowing that you have to work nine to five. A lot more. So we're trying to theorise exactly what goes on in that placement. The final thing I'm going to talk about is the NSS. Who loves the NSS? No one. Do you? We live in Ireland, I don't care about it. Oh, right. Well, it may, it may come to Ireland, you don't know. So this is, this is kind of the yardstick, isn't it? It's the one that we're all beaten with. It's the one that senior managers have no worries about trotting out to schools and saying, you lot have not done very well, what are you going to do? And I think there's a lot of us that, that probably feel a little bit um, demoralised by the amount of effort that we put in, yet the scores remain low. And it's kind of... <laughs> We're, we, the buck stops with us, even though perhaps, I'm going to argue now, the system might be the reason why um, we have an issue. So um, myself and Naomi have written uh, a little bit about this um, in the Times Higher, and we've suggested that perhaps the questions are one of the reasons why students interpret things 
and give us the scores that they do, they don't necessarily understand the questions, or we don't understand how they understand the questions. And, it, and what I'm going to suggest is that it's knowing the rules of the game so that we can maybe change the mindset of how they respond. It's also in the TEF, so it's kind of here to stay. So we did a study with 252 undergraduates. And we created some vignettes. So just to say that we had all of these different subject areas there, we used the, um, the Beach of Biglin. Um, no statistical difference between subject that they studied and no statistical difference in year of study. So the way that we collected the data is we went to various areas that students would hang out. I don't know if you've done this. Has anyone done that? Gone to an area where students might frequent? You have. I went into the library cafe, which is a really strange environment. Very different on a Monday to a Friday afternoon. Very different. But students are working in this cafe. So there's coffees everywhere. They're collaboratively. They've all got these spaces. They're not sat at a fixed computer. They've all got their own computers. But it's this collaborative learning space that's within the library, but it, they're allowed to talk. The, the amount of conversations. So I basically walked in and said, here's an iPad. Would you mind filling in this survey? It'll take 10 minutes. It took a bit longer. And it was very much just grabbing any student that would potentially fill in this questionnaire. They were all going to fill in the NSS at some point, and they'd all experience feedback at university. So we gave them these vignettes, and it was a, uh, a randomised design. Um, they would get lots of different vin vignettes in relation to the NSS questions. So as you'll see here, what we tried to replicate in the experience of these gender-neutral uh, and internationally um, uh, phrased names, so we'd use Sam, that could be a boy or a girl, we used Siam, which is a name in, in Chinese that could be a boy or a girl. Interestingly, if their respondent identified as female, they would think Sam was a female. So there might be something in that. But we tried to create an environment that wasn't that gender issue. And we, we had it along the learning focus or the transmission focus. So again, as I mentioned earlier, that old and new paradigm um, change. So if we talk about the clarity of criteria, so the assessment criteria question, question eight, I know you're all familiar with the, uh, those four. Um, we talk about how in a learning focus situation, uh, the, the uh, character had an opportunity in class to understand and apply criteria. So the lecturer, lecturer or educator would talk through the criteria, maybe use exemplars and get students to understand the criteria. In the transmission, they just stick them up on the VLE. So the paper behind glass analogy. It's just there if you want to go and see it. I've ticked the box that students were informed in advance of the assessment being handed in, in the module guide, for example. We also talked about fairness, um, anonymity and non-anonymity. Uh, and I've got a paper that, 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 that argues that anonymous marking doesn't necessarily help. And I'll, I'll, we have some stats in here that, that go against that for this particular group of students. Um, we also talked about the timing of feedback. This is something that DVCs and VCs love, the timing of feedback. Three-week turnaround. Who came up with that? Anyone? Any ideas? Apparently, three weeks is the perfect amount of time for us to mark work and return it to students. Is that real? Is that true? I don't know. It just happened, didn't it? And everyone just went along with it. So across the country, three weeks is the turnaround. That's the, the panacea for feedback. Just get it back to them quicker. All right. Obviously, one of the issues with that is that you might have an individual in your team that says, well, I get it back to my students quicker. Yeah, but you're only as strong as your weakest or strongest link when it comes to that. Because if Jack Jones down the road can do it in two weeks, why can't you? And then that actually causes a problem with perceptions of, the, of, of, of timeliness. 
And actually, we then wanted to question, what is timeliness? So we kept the character's vignette within, they got the feedback returned one week prior to the next submission. And in this one, it was one day prior. So we kept it that the student, because obviously if we just said it came after, they'd have just said that's terrible. So we kept it that their feedback was available to the student. And the final one is the utility of comments. So the, this is the question that we, we, we are less, um, uh, less happy with, if you like. And this is in our Times Higher um, article where we question whether the, the actual question. It says, I received detailed comments on my work. Helpful, helpful comments on my work, I think it's now changed. I've received helpful comments on my work. So in that, the question is, what does helpful mean? Yeah. And the word received suggests recipients because it was given to me. So we would think, well, if you send them comments and we think they're helpful, they should all give us fives, right? But that's not bearing out in the actual responses. So students are uh, interpreting that question in a different way than, than we, we perhaps understand. So we said... Um, in the learning focus, we directed them towards area for future improvement. And in here, we just told them why they got the mark, basically. There weren't any future improvement comments. So, what we found was in criteria, students rated, so we asked them to rate what do you think the character would have given on the NSS question between one and five. We asked the character um, that question and then we said to the student what do you think they gave statistically they would rate the learning focused so where the lecturer spent time in the classroom going through the criteria and explaining how that would play out in a potential assignment they rated that as higher than just putting it on the VLE so that's getting into the four category most of us would aspire to get fours I guess on the NSS so that'd be great these students are rating I think in this study for that one higher than perhaps the national average the anonymous marking, um, statistically significant where they wanted anonymous marking for these students. We're not sure why, and I think just on one question we need to have more of an, an understanding of, of anonymity. We didn't screen for anything in terms of um, the, the gender, we haven't captured that in there, or, or, or ethnicity, etc. Because they were protected characteristics. The timing one though, look at those scores. So even though in both of those situations, the character experienced what we would describe as adhering to institutional policy, 2.38 and 2.81. That's bad, right? We wouldn't want those scores. So what is going on? Why are they saying that? And I'm going to give you the qualitative comments in a moment. And in terms of comments, no statistical significant difference between transmission and learning focused, but the student got comments. So that may be something about them interpreting as helpful. But again, those scores are quite high. So actually receiving comments. So you could infer that perhaps the person responding thought that was a good experience and maybe they didn't or may not get experience. The fact that they got feedback is a positive because I have spoken to lots of students before and they don't get any feedback sometimes. So, the assessment criteria. All oh, right, okay, I'm nearly there. Um, <clears throat> students like and value opportunities to work with criteria. Engage in peer assessment, engage with exemplars. So, a lot of... Um, uh, practitioners I know are taking out some of the content and almost creating a flipped classroom environment where perhaps one of the lectures that they did they would video that the student could go and watch and they would spend and devote time to doing assessment criteria in the classroom would that increase student satisfaction potentially we also asked them about blame whose fault was this so this was trying to get us to uh, interpret the student's understanding of the questions. What, who are they blaming? What are they thinking when they're answering the questions? 
So when it's a transmission-focused vignette, i.e. we're just putting it up on the VLE, that's the lecturer's fault. So they're the ones that haven't helped me. When it's the learning-focused, when the character gave a low score, it's the character's fault because they didn't engage with the process. So it was there. And you're probably going to get that. Not all students, just because it's there, will engage with it. And that's another issue that we have to address. The timeliness. So the experience was more positive when there was time to enact the comments. But I think we probably need to look beyond the mantra of timeliness, get it back to them quicker, because I'm not sure that that is always going to be helpful. So I have seen instances, one of our schools um, at Kent um, did a whole program uh, view, and they found that quite a lot of their assessments, although they were getting the work back to the students within the turnaround, they had sat another assessment during that three-week period. So the students were incredibly frustrated that assessment feedback came back and there wasn't necessarily an opportunity to use it. So what we're arguing for is that perhaps assessment design is more of a, a way of us addressing this timeliness so that students can see clear opportunities of where feedback can be used. So it's almost taking um, the feedback out of it and saying, how do we design our programs? How do we design our assessments? So that it gives students a clear opportunity to, 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 to enact, if they choose to. We also looked at the utility around the helpful comments. And because it says the word received, students are very much seeing it as the educator's responsibility. Students want opportunities for dialogue and enactment of comments. They, quite a lot of them uh, in the qualitative uh, comments said, well, it's fine getting it back, but we want to talk about it. We want opportunities to engage. And I think this is the biggest challenge for Mass HE. If you've got classrooms of five or 600 and you're the only port of, of knowledge, that's really stressful. Um, and there is an excellent paper by um, Jacqueline Broadbent in, in Australia about how she operationalizes dialogic feedback and peer feedback. And she trains students to give feedback to each other in a class of 2000. In Australia, that's common to have modules of that. When I heard that, I thought, oh, cracky me, that wouldn't go down well. We wouldn't have the space anyway, we'd be in, in lecture rooms. But that is a lot, that's daunting. So you have to have a team, and it's about that team approach. I'm nearly finished. The last thing that we're looking at, we got some funding for this. Um, we didn't get funding for the second word. It was called intellectual candor. That was seen as a more conservative way of getting money. When we do presentations, it's always streaking. Because people remember that, right? My colleague always uses Lego characters. She's not comfortable with me using potentially bare bums. But I think you get the point, right? This is an idea that's come out of medical education um, by the two authors at the bottom there, Margaret Beerman and Elizabeth Malloy. And it's about how we break down that barrier between students seeing us as godlike figures that are perfect and actually sharing the process of how we've become successful. How we can share with them so we streak in sense of intellectually bearing our souls to our students. How do we tell them about the process? How do we tell them that how we use feedback? So some of the ways we've seen this work is that um, researchers will take students through the publication process. They will show them multiple drafts. They will show them the feedback that they've had off their colleagues and their peers. They will then show them the feedback they get from reviewers. And more importantly, how they've actioned that feedback and then got subsequently that paper in a, in a top quality journal. So it's this process about talking about how we manage effect and how we've become successful 
to try and get students to see that we've been through that process. We've been undergrads, we've been postgrads, so that we can understand that. And we're talking to a number of lecturers that some of them are, are very, very successful, some of them are just starting out, about how academics use feedback to improve their uh, performance um, through this guise. And we've got a workshop that we're doing with staff in the development sense. All resources are going to be free, so there'll be something coming at the end of, uh, of this academic year, so, so that you can do that with, with, with your teams, so that we can start sharing that process and, and, and understanding that resilience is a, is a thing that we've developed as we've got more successful, and it's not a bad thing to get negatives. And one thing I will tell you is that paper that is one of the most cited papers for the last two years got rejected from four journals before it got published. Now when I heard that I thought there's something in this because if he's they are successful as they are with 50,000 that they've bowed uh, citations everyone faces adversity. Questions? Thank you very much.